Hey guys, and thanks for checking out this episode of the John Campia Show podcast, the audio-only version of the John Campia Show on YouTube. This episode was recorded on Tuesday, May the 5th, 2020, titled Tom Cruise is Actually Going to Space to Shoot a Movie. We're thrilled to have you guys with us. And remember, if you're listening to this podcast, you also can get a question in on the live questions part of the show by going to the link in the top of the description of this podcast, streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You can use that tip link anytime to support the channel and get your question in on the show. And for now, let's get to the episode. Now, a while ago, uh, they made an announcement that Netflix was going to be doing a new series with Steve Carell and one of the uh, creators of the North American version of The Office for a new show called Space Force. And we haven't heard a lot about it. We knew they were in development and they they knew uh, we knew they were doing all stuff. Well, apparently uh, it's ready to go because the first trailer for Space Force has dropped. The basic premise that they suggest in the show is that in order to protect the Internet satellites, the president has ordered the creation of a new Space Force division to uh, dominate space. And they've put Steve Carell in charge of doing at least his character in doing that and the trailer's very funny i mean it's a funny trailer but rob you and i were talking before we started the the show here today that we were kind of overwhelmed by the cast of it yeah like because not only do you have uh steve carell john malkovich is like wait a minute wait a minute john malkovich is one of the stars of this show lisa kudrow's in there uh jason uh, schwartz is in there who I love uh, a lot of really high profile, really cool people. But anyway, Rob, you had a chance to take a look at this uh, trailer. What do you think about the first preview here for Space Force? Well, first, you know, obviously it's not set in outer space yet, but it looks it looks pretty damn funny. I'll watch anything to do with any space program anywhere. Uh, and I, I mean, it looked lush. It looks hilarious. The cast looks great. And I hope it it is like a Doctor Strange Love esque satire. I mean, I I have high hopes, John. I have high hopes. Question here is, guys, have you had a chance to go and see this first review? I thought it looked really fun. I thought it looked really really fun. Did you guys have a chance to take a look at it yet? If so, what did you think? Jump down into the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, let's do one more off the top here before we get into our main stuff. And that is this, you know, we spoke a little bit yesterday about the fact that the Disney plus network had put out the first episode of their new docuseries on the Mandalorian. And they focused on the directors. And of course we know Mandalorian season two is coming later this year. We're all pretty excited. Now, Rob, in that first part, they focused on the directors And well, we've got some director's news here. Two new directors that have joined. Well, they've already shot their episodes, but we're now just finding out that they were there. Two new directors joining for season two is, of course, Robert Rodriguez uh, doing it. And Ant-Man and Ant-Man 2's Peyton Reed have joined. Now, they will be joining Jon Favreau, who himself is going to direct one or two episodes. Uh, Dave Filoni's returning, and Rick uh, Famuyima is also returning uh, to that that as well. So we've got some returning directors. We've got a couple of new directors in there. Uh, I'm very excited about it. I think Robert Rodriguez... Look, Robert Rodriguez to me is a director who is admittedly a little bit hit and miss. Yeah, to me, he's a, he's a little bit hit and miss. But this sort of gritty Western space style story, to me, if you were to ask me what would be like a perfect kind of project for a Robert Rodriguez and his sensibilities to do, seems to me the Mandalorian would be a pretty good one. And you know what? We probably should have seen this coming because on Jon Favreau's chef show, 
in the, one of the recent seasons, he had Robert Rodriguez in. So we probably should have seen this coming at the same time. And Peyton Reed, I love it. I really love the job that Peyton Reed's done with the Ant-Man films. We've talked a lot about how he's a lot of people's choice maybe to direct a Fantastic Four movie. So this is an interesting mixture in here, Rob. I'm kind of liking what I'm seeing. Rob, you've now taken a look at this. You see, you know, Filoni, uh, Femuyima's coming back. Uh, John Favreau himself is going to be directing. Now we add the likes of Robert Rodriguez, Peyton Reed. What do you think about these additions? Well, it seems like a big director party. Like, <laughs> like it's like the party you want to get invited to in Hollywood now is to direct an episode of The Mandalorian, which I think is the best thing ever. Because, you know, uh, I'm sure Favreau is handpicking people that he not only knows but trusts. And uh, I, I'm sure... It can only be a good thing for the morale. I can only imagine what a happy set that must be. And the directors, I'm sure, are all happy to be there because you get to play in the Star Wars universe without having the weight or the pressure of having to make a $250 million movie that satisfies the world. You know, you come in, you work on a TV schedule, you get to use uh, all of this great new stagecraft technology. And Robert Rodriguez... uh, at the forefront of technology. I mean, look at what he did with Alita Battle Angel. And I think... It's got to be what a fun thing to do. And I, I'm sure there's a now a healthy competition amongst the directors to sort of one up each other in a friendly way. I mean, it only it was really interesting. One of the things I thought was really interesting about the documentary, John, is that the other directors would kind of ha- come and hang out on the sets of episodes that they weren't directing. Yeah. You know, to offer their support and uh, that's a really cool thing. I mean, I kind of experienced a little bit of that with the show I worked on a couple of years back, and it it's always fun to have that. And as long as you don't find it intimidating or at all, which you shouldn't, but it, it's it just looks like what a what a fun what a fun place to work. John Favreau is really he did so in first season and he's doing it again. He's putting together a really neat collection of directors for the individual episodes, and yeah. I'm fascinating to see his specific episodes that he's going to direct himself. So I'm kind of excited about that too. Question here, guys, is for you. What do you think about the addition of a Robert Rodriguez and a Peyton Reed? Remember, they've already shot their episodes, so now we just got to wait a few months to actually see them. I'm kind of excited about it. I think this is a nice addition to the mix. Obviously, Taika Waititi couldn't come back because he's got, well, he's got to finish his uh, next goal wins that he's doing with Michael Fassbender. Then he's got to do Thor, Love and Thunder. And then he'll get around to doing his very own Star Wars movie, which we talked about yesterday. But what do you think about these additions? Jump down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. Hey, listen, before we get into our main topics today, just a couple things I want to make you guys aware of. Make sure you're up to date on this kind of stuff. There is now an audio only version of the John Campus Show podcast available for everybody. Thanks to our Patreon supporters uh, who uh, allowed us to release this to the public. So you can just go to your favorite podcasting app of choice and find yourself the John Campus Show podcast. By the way, you might have a little bit of trouble with it today. Uh, it should if it if you do, it should clear up almost immediately we did switch podcast service providers but that podcast is there you can go and find it on your podcasting app of choice the other thing that we made available to everybody is we kind of gathered everything into one place and we put together the john campia show shop which you can find simply at the john slash shop there you'll see all the stuff you can get for the john campus show merchandise the different gear that i use for the show a few other cool things as well so if you're interested in any of that you can simply go to the john slash shop all right guys 
With all that down, let's move on to our main topics today. And how do we select our main topics here on The John Campy Show? Well, it's really rather simple. You see, you guys come up with our main topics by going anytime, 24-7, over to www.thejohncampyashow.com slash contact. Once you guys get there, you're going to see a form. Fill it out with your topic or question. It's absolutely free. Hit submit, and then maybe, just maybe, you might see your submission featured as a main topic here on The John Campia Show. With that down, let's move on to main topic number one. And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by Mr. Wayne, who writes, Hey, John and Rob, Nicolas Cage will reportedly play Joe Exotic in a scripted Tiger King TV series for CBS. You may as well give him all the awards now. I think this is an interesting pick and a great opportunity for Cage to go bonkers. What are your thoughts? All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in. And and yes, right now, at least for the next 24 hours or so, the world still seems to be being swept up in the Tiger King phenomena. However, as is typical with a lot of Netflix Netflix stuff, it becomes a worldwide phenomenon for about a week and then everybody stops talking about it. But Tiger King and Joe Exotic are hot off the press. And what he's talking about is it looks like Nicolas Cage is signed up to actually play Joe Exotic in a scripted series. This comes to us from Variety who wrote, Nicolas Cage is set to star in a scripted series centered on Joe Exotic, the subject of Netflix docuseries Tiger King. Variety has learned exclusively. The eight-episode series is being produced by Imagine Television Studios and CBS Television Studios. It will be taken to market in the coming days. It is based on the Texas Monthly article, Joe Exotic, A Dark Journey into the World of a Man Gone Wild by Leif Registad. Now, it should be noted here, lest anybody thinks CBS is just trying to copy on what Netflix has done. It should be noticed that CBS actually acquired the rights to this and were interested in this article in the series and actually acquired the rights a year ago. Like they got them in the summer of 2019. And I'm sure the explosion of the popularity of the docuseries on Netflix kind of helped motivate CBS to get this thing rolling. Rob, listen, I'm going to be honest with you. I watched about half of the first episode of Tiger King and I was bored and I kind of tuned away from it. And now I've had a lot of people tell me, oh my God, Campy, you have to go back and keep watching it. And I probably will at some point, Uh, but I I have not watched it. You know, I watched about a half hour of it. That's all I saw. So I, I really can't, I'm not qualified really to give too much of an opinion on this, but just seeing the character in the limited exposure that I had, Nicolas Cage playing him seems bonkers. But it also seems fairly logical to me in a lot of ways. Anyway, Rob, you hear this news about Nick Cage playing Joe Exotic. What do you think of it? Perfect casting. <laughs> Cannot wait. I can't. You know, when I read that yesterday, I'm like, all right, somebody somebody is not sleeping on the job on this one. Uh, I think it's such a funny idea. I think he'll play the part so well. I mean, finally, Nicolas Cage has a hairline that somebody can recreate accurately with a wig. <laughs> it's 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 going to be bonkers. I, I I can't wait. Plus, you know, he can sing. He, he can bring that Elvis vibe to those country music tunes that Joe Exotic sings. So I think it's going to be great. I, I You know, I do we need to see a version of it so quickly fictionalized? Eh, who cares? <laughs> I want to see it. Now, what do you, what do you think about the notion here that maybe this is CBS being a little capitalistic? They're capitalizing on something that Netflix has made popular, but they did own the rights. For, I mean, I don't know. What do you think about that whole thing? Do you think it like you kind of suggested it and you alluded to it for a second there? Is it 
too soon to bring something like this to screen. This isn't exactly a brand new story. We're just kind of really hearing about it. But I don't know. Is this the right move for CBS to do a show like this? Like putting the Nicolas Cage angle aside, is this a good move for CBS to make? Well, you know, pop culture is a fickle mistress, and it depends how long it takes them to make this. If it takes a year because of COVID and they can't actually shoot it, maybe the fervor will have died down. But if they can get it out in a reasonable amount of time, I think people will tune in. Look, dude, they got me just to see Nicolas Cage's performance. I'll tune in (laughs) just for that. And I don't think you're alone. All right, guys, the question here is... (laughs) What do you think about Nicolas Cage playing Joe Exotic in an upcoming CBS series adaptation of Tiger King? Want to know what you guys think? Jump down into the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right. With that down, let's move on to main topic number two. And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by Edwin Perez, who writes, Hey, John and crew. I don't know if you read yet, but Deadline just dropped that Tom Cruise and Elon Musk's SpaceX are to shoot a movie in space. There are no studios yet attached to it, but it is in very early development. Thanks and stay safe. All right. Thanks for sending that in, man. And you know what? This isn't one of the jokes that we've joked around about a lot over the last year. It's like, when does Fast and Furious shoot in space? Next Mission Impossible movie, Tom Cruise straps himself to the side of a space shuttle and goes to the moon or something crazy like that. No, this ain't no joke. Tom Cruise is is partnering up with Elon Musk, SpaceX, and NASA to shoot a movie actually in outer space. Uh, this is what we get from, uh, this comes to us from our friends over at Slashroom who wrote, Tom Cruise is defying gravity. The global superstar is set to literally leave the globe to star in a new movie which will be shot in space. And he's teaming up with Elon Musk's SpaceX company to make it happen. Deadline reports that this new Tom Cruise space movie is not a Mission Impossible project and that no studios yet involved because it is still in early development. But Cruise and SpaceX are working on the action adventure project with NASA. And if it actually happens, it will be the first narrative feature film to be shot in outer space. Th- this almost doesn't need any commentary. I mean, it, it, it is what it is. It's like you almost you read the headline to this and you think, of course, Tom Cruise is going to shoot a movie in outer space because this is just what Tom Cruise does. And listen, there's a gimmick aspect to this for sure. There is a gimmick aspect to this. But let me tell you why Tom Cruise really wants to do this. I'll I'll tell you why Cruise really wants to do this. Tom Cruise is at a point in his career now where I I believe he's closer to 60 now than he is to 50. I, I believe he's closer to 60 than he is to 50. I think he's at a stage in his career now, and he has been for a couple of years, where he is not only doing as much action as he can, because he knows like every action star, there's a limited window that he can do that stuff. But it seems to me like the last number of years, Tom Cruise has been focusing on legacy. It really feels to me like he's been focusing on legacy. And if you're focused on legacy and you're thinking about your legacy as a film star, as an action star about the Tom Cruise, I was the first guy to shoot a movie in Base, I win. I, I mean, there just seems to be a little bit of that thing. I, I just can't help. The, when, I, when I read the headline, Rob, indeed, the first thought in my head was, of course he is. But the next second thought is, this will forever immortalize him in the history of Hollywood. It cements his legacy. Um, 
and, and, and like forever. We're always at Tom Cruise, first guy ever to shoot a movie in space. Doesn't matter how long history goes, there will only ever be one guy who shot a movie in space first, and it'll be Tom Cruise. So I don't know. It, it's wacky. I was a little bit surprised to find out it's not a Mission Impossible movie because it just seemed to me that that's where Mission Impossible or the Fast and Furious franchise will eventually end up going. So it's not going to be that. Uh, you know, James Cameron said he tried. He floated the idea about him and Tom Cruise doing a movie in space once uh, a bunch of years ago that never actually came to anything. But anyway, Rob, you hear about this. What do you think about the notion of Tom Cruise shooting a movie in space and why is he doing it? Well, first of all, John, James Cameron's got to direct this movie. Come on. <laughs> I, I mean, and who's going to be the camera crew? And how many people are they going to take up into orbit with them to actually make this film? You've got sound. You've got camera. Grip and electric. I mean, I'd say it's a tall order unless Tom Cruise is going to be a one-man band and shoot it himself, which he could do. With but, a GoPro uh, on a selfie stick. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, which, hey, you're still in space. Um. You know, this this is an inevitability as our as our space presence continues. But I just think talk about cost prohibitive and who's going to give them insurance. I want to know <laughs> what company is going to give them production insurance to shoot this thing, because I, I, I'd love to I'd love to talk to the CEO of that company. But um, look, I, I think even if it's a five minute sequence in a film. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if this goes. Uh, one thing that Elon Musk can do is he can put people into orbit. He'll be able, as we'll see later this month, SpaceX can actually put people into orbit. So the vehicle to get into space is his. And if he wants to put up the money, I don't know how long, how much it costs to launch a SpaceX rocket into orbit, but that's uh, this this is a budget buster. Uh, I Look, I'd like to see it happen just because the idea of it just tickles me to death. And uh, I think if there's anybody that could actually make it happen, it's the two of them. I think you nailed on something important there that there is a really good likelihood that this is not a movie that will shoot entirely in space, but rather right. be a part of a movie. But either way, he'd be the first guy to do it. So question here is, guys, what do you make of this news? Are you like, yep, of course, of course, Tom Cruise going to space. Are you surprised by this? Do you think it's actually going to happen? Remember, a lot of movies get in early development and never happen. Maybe this will be one of those. What do you guys think? Jump down to the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right. With that down and out of the way, let's move on to main topic number three. And our third main topic today gets submitted to us by Jeff Bingham, who writes, Netflix is claiming that the Chris Hemsworth action film Extraction is set is set to top viewing numbers after four weeks of release. As a result, a sequel has just been announced with Joe Russo returning to write the script. I personally found the movie monumentally boring, so I'm not too excited for a sequel. I also find it disingenuous to tout record viewing numbers based on questionable viewing metrics compared to the numbers of past films that had stricter metrics. What are your thoughts? All right. Thanks a lot for saying that in, Jeff. And just getting back to that second part, what Jeff is referring to about the metrics is something that Robert and I talked about maybe a month or so ago, that Netflix has changed their definition of a view. Like, I, I can't remember exactly, Rob, before what a Netflix view used to mean. It's like it used to mean you had to click on it and you had to watch at least how long was it? Like at least so I think it was like seven minutes or no, it was like a half an hour or something. Yeah, it was like a half. You had to watch at least whatever. And that's what counted as a view. And then recently Netflix appended that to say it's actually what one minute now. 
they only have something, to watch something uh, yeah, for a minute. One, three minutes. I don't know. It's just something which to me is not a view. It's 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 basically a swallow or a gulp of something. It's a taste. Not a it's, view. It, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a sample size, I guess. But anyway, so that's what he was referring to when he says about the met. But metrics numbers aside, the fact of the matter is a lot of people have watched the Chris Hemsworth film Extraction. And listen, I'll tell you what, I don't think it's a good movie, but I disagree when you say you think it's boring because there's just I personally thought the action it was top, top notch. I thought outside of the action, the film was pretty poor, but I thought the action itself was exciting and riveting and i thought they did a top-notch job of it and yes no surprise they're talking about now doing another one this comes to us from the people at deadline who write joe russo has closed a deal to write another installment of the high action film uh agbo the company run by the russo brothers and his brother anthony are putting the pieces together and are optimistic that sam hargrave will return as a director and that chris hemsworth will reprise his role as mercenary tyler rake though those deals won't be made by netflix until the script is ready the deal is closed for me to write extraction Two, and we are in the formative stages of what the story can be russo told deadline we're not committing yet to whether that story goes forward is a sequel or backwards a prequel uh in time that's what joe russo wrote now of course one of the reasons why he's remaining a little bit coy about whether or not this proposed follow-up film for extraction would be a sequel or prequel is i won't give too much away but if you've seen the movie you know that's a little problematic to do a sequel, isn't it? So you know what we're talking about for those of you who've seen it. Rob, I, I mean, I get it. I didn't think this was a very good movie overall as a film. But the action was so heart-stoppingly exciting. Sometimes they overdid a little bit, but they did some really creative things with action that I hadn't seen before, including in particular their car chase stuff, which I thought was just revolutionary I, I, i've never felt as immersed in a car chase scene as i have in this the, the action was just top notch which is no surprise because the movie was directed by a stuntman so i mean no surprise that the action was absolutely aces in this and if the viewing numbers are anywhere near what netflix is proposing and if you do it for a reasonable budget it seems to make sense that you'd want to try to line up to do another one whether or not you like the first one i think this makes sense anyway rob you've had a chance uh to read this news what do you think about them going back to do another extraction well i mean look you know the proof's in the pudding and if if these numbers are big for netflix and they know exactly i mean look they, their analytics are probably very very accurate because they can see Who's watching, you know, who streams their shows. And when they get something like this that is clearly a hit, whether it's perfect or not, for Netflix, it's a hit. And I think that exactly they they would want to get something like this made, uh, a sequel made right away. And it makes sense because unlike, you know, a major studio, Netflix can work even faster because they don't have to wait for like a worldwide rollout. They put something up on it gets rolled out on the world and they're going to get analytics back within a week or two. And they're like, yep, here we go. Let's make another one. And they'll go. They'll green light it and probably get it into production in two or three months. <laughs> and uh, well, assuming the pandemic doesn't curtail those plans, but. Uh, I, I like the way they work. I wish studios could work this fast. So, what do you think good for them? Wh what do you, where do you think they'll put their budget on this around when you, when you look at it? Well, look, I mean, this franchise is the action. Yeah, and I'm sure uh, they'll come up with – I look at it this way. This is the next Olympus has fallen franchise. <laughs> now, do, do I – That's do actually I, a good analogy. I like that analogy. 
You know, do I think those movies are the best? No. Did I love Olympus Has Fallen? Yes. Did I like it more than White House Down? I did. Was London Has Fallen very good? No. But I liked watching it. And Angel Has <laughs> Fallen. I mean, these movies are replacing a, a whole genre that we had in the 80s that whether it was canon films bringing it to us or whether it was movies like Commando, there is a joy in these kinds of action movies, I think. They're totally B movies. I mean, they're sold to us as A-list films, but they really exist for the action and whatever things, hopefully they're going to be, hopefully they're great. Sometimes you get a great synthesis of the two, but I, I kind of like the fact that we've, they're not really low rent, but they're not exactly highbrow either. And if they deliver the action goods, then, like, look, my beloved movies, The Raid and The Raid 2, or as I like to say, The Rad and The Rad 2, even radder. As much as I like those movies, I don't go into them thinking I'm going to be enlightened the way I would be, say, watching, well, The Elephant Man or The English Patient or Gandhi or something like that. And as long as they deliver that tasty action goodness, I think there's a reason these movies should exist. And if they're going to up the action ante and if I get to watch Chris Hemsworth kill a bunch of dudes... That's an afternoon well spent. Yeah, I, I think even some of the harsher critics of the movie, and, and I am a critic of the movie. Yeah. You got to say the action is really good. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's right. really and, and imaginative like, well, and creative and fun to watch. I mean, I know when someone says it's, there's people that, that action, I mean, action is like a, the plot of a movie stops when you watch an action scene because you're just getting action. And it's not like mm -hmm. you're wondering, I wonder if the hero is going to survive this action scene or not. We know he's going to survive. Maybe he'll die at the very end or something, but but so uh, mind-numbing action, I think, can, in fact, be boring, and you hope that mm. it's not, but if it's really well done, there is a singular – look, I like roller coasters. They don't mean anything, right. but when I get on them and they're thrilling for the minute and a half or 90 seconds I'm on them, I enjoy those 90 seconds, and I, I like the fact that the world has roller coasters, and that's kind of how I feel about action movies like this. All right, guys, the question here is, number one, are you surprised at all that they're talking about doing a follow-up film to Extraction? Do you think it'll be a sequel or a prequel? I, I think they're clearly going to go sequel. I think that's obvious. And the very fact that they're playing coy about it, I think, just speaks to that a lot. But maybe you think differently. Jump down to the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right. With that down, let's move into our fourth and final main topic today. And our fourth and final main topic gets sent into us by uh, Slevenbeam. And Slevenbeam writes, It's been reported that Demolition Man 2 is in the works. What? Why? I asked myself when I read the article, is Warner Brothers that hard up for content? Almost 30 years after the original, I'm probably not only the only one asking those questions. What are your thoughts? All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, Slevin. And uh, yeah, now listen, it should be clarified that there are some places running saying it's, it's official. It's happening. It's not official. It, it's very, very clearly not official, but... It is being looked at and it is kind of being developed and maybe they can make something out of it. Sylvester Stallone himself was doing like a Q&A sort of thing and he was asked directly about a Demolition Man sequel, which seems like a ridiculous question to ask. However, he surprised the world. Stallone was asked, this comes from Dark Horizons, Stallone was asked directly about the possibility of a sequel and surprised everybody with the answer, I think there is coming. 
We're working on it right now with Warner Brothers, and it's looking fantastic. So that should come out. That's going to happen. So Sylvester Stallone is saying that they are indeed going to be having, (laughs) they're going to be having a Demolition Man 2. Now, listen, we should also say that there have been other times that Stallone in his career said something is going to happen and it didn't. And that's fine. That happens with every filmmaker. Every studio's got films they put in development, doesn't actually come out, doesn't actually work. But Rob, I find it fascinating (laughs) just on its own that they're even contemplating doing a Demolition Man. I mean, a a couple of questions come to mind. One, isn't it far too late to do a sequel to this? Number two, is there even a story to tell as a follow-up to the first Demolition Man? Three, is there enough of an audience that still remember the first Demolition Man that would be intrigued to go? And more importantly, would a new generation of fans want to go out and support it. And listen, I'm not saying, I'm not necessarily sitting here saying it's a bad idea. I'm just saying, I think there are some logical questions to ask about the feasibility about doing this. But hey, at the same time, if there's a concept, why not kick the tires a little bit? Why not? Like if, you, if you've got development money, why not hire a screenwriter and say, hey, see what you can do with this and let's see if there's anything there that we can be done, that can be done. And if the results sort of look good, then you take the next step in the development and see where it goes. And maybe at some point it gets to the point that it actually gets greenlit. Still a lot of questions here, Rob. So let me ask you, you hear Sylvester Stallone's words on this. What do you think about the idea of them doing another demolition, man? Well, you know, I actually, when I first heard this, I'm thinking, okay, because of the, the toilet paper crisis at the beginning of the COVID-19 thing and everyone's (laughs) talking about the three seashells and everything. So Demolition Man is in the air and everywhere. But then I actually started thinking about like, okay, what could you do? And the model for this, believe it or not, I was thinking about is Creed. Because, you you know, the film, the first film you have these two men froze, unfrozen in, in the future. And I'm like, well, why wouldn't there be Someone else that could be unfrozen, you know, their time is up and you, you'd you have somebody new, a young character like an Adonis Creed, maybe not a cop, but somebody else, maybe a military officer that was wrongfully convicted of war crimes or something. And that person seeks out it's it's uh, what's the what's what's his character's name in the movie? So I cannot Stallone's. remember. Well, they go. The, the guy seeks out the only person on Earth that would have any understanding of his experience. And remember, the world would be Stallone's character and he'd probably be retired because he's in his 70s. So you've got this new character and there's some new problem. And maybe maybe there's a whole group of people that are that were also unfrozen that this guy had a beef with 60 or 70 years before terrorists from today who have been unleashed on the future and he has to go after them sort of a nicholas nicholas meyer time after time if you've seen that movie i love that movie um and and stallone becomes a supporting character like he was in the movie creed and i think it could be pretty badass you could you could come up with a pretty i mean it sounds stupid to be honest but i think i think the plot could actually work i i really think that this could have a a a totally legit plot. You you have a, a new new bunch of characters, and Stallone becomes a supporting character like he was in Creed, and I think it could work. You could bring Sandra Bullock back. Um, you can even bring Wesley's. Well, you can't bring Wesley Snipes back, but I think you you it could work, dude. It could work. I'm in. 
Why can't you bring Wesley Snipes back? They could find a way. I mean, they, they worked they worked together again on the last uh, Expendables movie. Or if you want to follow the Creed analogy, just have him now like, you know, uh, Wesley Snipes' great grandson is now there and out for revenge. <laughs> right. If you really want to follow the Creed motif. I mean, I know that there might be some, the, the Creed analogy is nice. I like that. That that could be a working theory there. All right, guys, question is for you. Would you be interested, honestly, would you be interested in a Demolition Man 2? I think if this had been floated like 15 years ago, I think I would have had a little bit more interest. And I'd be lying if I didn't say I'm at least curious about it, but I'm not sure. There seems like there would be a lot of hurdles. Maybe you guys can see ways over those hurdles. Jump down into the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With all that stuff down and out of the way, we're going to move into our live questions here in just a minute. But first, you know, Rob's got some things he needs to do today. So we're going to let Rob go at this point. Rob, we're going to see you again here tomorrow. But in the meantime, where can people follow you and your adventures online? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Burnett RM. Find me on Instagram at Robert Meyer Burnett or find me on my own YouTube channel, uh, The Burnett Work and my show, Rob's Observations. The show about something. Show all right, Rob. Something. Thanks a lot for being here, buddy. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow. Have a good one, man. You too. All right. Take care. All right, guys. We're going to keep now moving on into the live questions. Now, if you want to send in a comment or question, we're going to get through all of them today. I, I promise you we're going to get through all of them today. But if you want to send in a comment or question for today's uh, show, there's two ways you can do it. The best way to do it is to go to our tip link, which is simply streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You can find the link to that in the top line of the description of this video. Or if you need to, you can just use the super chat feature. Uh, you can go ahead and do that, and then we'll get to your live questions. Now, before we get to that, I'm going to take just a short I, the countdown clock will say four minutes. Really, it's just going to be about two minutes. So just give me a couple of minutes here, guys, to stretch the legs, rest the vocal cords, go refill my drink. Hang tight, guys, and we will be right back. All right, guys, and we are back. Thank you so much for your patience and indulgence as I took a quick little break there. For now, let's keep things right on rolling and get into your live questions. And we're going to start things off here with Jaron Morris, who writes, John, it's confirmed CampiaCon 2020 is happening. New trailers for movies, video games, and future movies coming for all studios and many, many guests. And five UFC fights will take place. What fights are you setting up? That's a great question, of course. You know, Comic-Con may be gone, ladies and gentlemen, this year. But you're going to have CampiaCon 2020. Uh, side note, there is no CampiaCon 2020. CampiaCon 2020 is coming. All the studios have been writing in, begging me for some time slots to highlight their big movies. The five UFC fights I set up. I set up a bit of an over-the-hill match. I set up a match between Anderson the Spider Silva and George St. Pierre. Uh, we finally get uh, Ferguson versus Khabib. I think I want to see out of retirement match. I want to see a Captain America, Randy, the natural couture fighting Rampage Jackson. Uh, that's one I've always kind of wanted to see. Uh, I want to rematch Stephen Bonner versus Forrest Griffin. I'll see those guys lace it back up again, get in the ring, throw down again for another time. And I want to see Valentina versus Amanda Nunez. That's a, that's another fight I'd like to see. So those are probably the five fights I set up in my little uh, fairy tale world here. All right. Uh, what the Rock is cooking writes. Uh, Chris Pratt is auctioning getting eaten by a dino in Jurassic World Dominion. Uh, 
for all in uh what dino would you choose to eat you i'm throwing a stick for a dilaposaurus nerdy style also for all in watiti needs to auction off killing jar jar in his star wars movies well listen i'll t- i'll be honest with you i've not heard of this but any sort of thing that raises money for charity you know i'm all in for that i, I whatever people want to do for charity i'll get involved that's fine so i think it's a great idea for him to do that what dino would I want to be eaten by if I was in a Jurassic Park movie? Oh, T-Rex. Obviously T-Rex. I would totally want to get eaten by a T-Rex if I'm going to be in one. Um, also, but to be serious for a second, while I love the charity stuff, I really don't think movies should be affected by that. Like, I don't think you put in, I know you're joking, but on a serious note, I don't think you throw in a Jar Jar getting killed scene for something like that. I, I think movies need to stay isolated that way. But if you're going to do it anyway, might as well raise some money uh, for a good cause while you're doing it. So I, I'm all I'm all down for that. All right, let's see here. Next up, uh, Django Unchained writes, or Django 19 writes, I should say. <laughs> Django Unchained, of course. Uh, I still haven't seen The Lord of the Rings. Oh, dude, you got to get on that, brother. You got to get on that. I still haven't seen The Lord of the Rings, but I'm going to this week. Excellent. Just purchased the trilogy for $17.99 on Google Play today. The whole trilogy for $18? Bucks? Okay, that's awesome. Uh, they're on sale if anybody who hasn't seen them or just wants to watch them again uh, can get them. Extended Trilogy is $29.99. Hey, Extended Trilogy is great, but really all you really need is The Lord of Things. That is a great deal. That's six bucks. That's six bucks a movie. That's amazing. Dude, listen, a lot of people have been writing into the show that, you know, during the... Um, uh, during the uh, lockdown, they're getting caught up on movies and a lot of people are t- t- saying, hey, watching The Godfather for the first time. And I've heard from a lot of people saying, watching Lord of the Rings for the first time. Great thing to do with your time, my friend. But also, Django, thank you for making us aware of that deal because that is an excellent deal. Guys, go check that out if you haven't seen it yet. 18 bucks, all three movies and you own them. Go do it. Doesn't get much better. All right. Willow writes, uh, since theaters are in razor thin margins, if they do open in the summer, but have to operate at less than 50% capacity for a few months, would that generate enough revenue for them to survive? The, the answer to that is no, not on an ongoing basis. Look, they're still going to lose money. Make no mistake about it. They're going to lose money um, being at 50% capacity. The hope is that they're going to lose less money at a much slower pace than if they're closed. I mean, that's that's just the reality. And, and look, let's be honest, too. Other than when there's a big blockbuster out, most of their theaters aren't normally more than 50% full, right? Like, you go to week three of, I don't know, let's say it actually survived in theaters. You go to week three of, say, The Gentleman, right? Let's, let's say The Gentleman, which is my favorite movie of the year so far. You go to a Wednesday screening week three, well, you're not going to get more than 50% capacity anyway. You're not, that theater is not going to be filled. Most of the time, uh, the theaters will be less than 50% anyway. They will still not be generating profits at, under those circumstances, but they'll be generating a lot more money than they are right now. It is a transitional period, right? It's, it's a road. It's the next step to getting them back. So it's what they got to start with, but you got to start with that. It's the roadmap to getting everything back to normal. And by the way, that is also a necessary step because a lot of people are naturally going to feel a little bit apprehensive about going back to crowded places like the movie theaters, whatever. So anything you can do, I would even suggest lower that to 30% capacity. 
anything you can do to make feet make people feel a little bit more at ease for a period of time i think is a wise wise investment for them to uh, to vest into it's probably gonna be the right thing for them to do but long term no you can't do it that way but in the intermediate step it's the right thing to do and it, it will be helping them get to where they need to go all right uh next up here this is how palps is back Dot, 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 I like that because well said. This is how well said. All right. Uh, a friend 72 writes, hey, John and crew, my movie recommendation is today an oldie and it's Ice Pirates. Actually, Ron Perlman is in Ice Pirates. It's Ice Pirates. It cracks me up every time. Uh, have you seen it? And what do you and Rob think of it? I'll tell you what. I don't know that I would love it all that much today, but when I was a kid, like, aside from Star Wars, which is my earliest childhood memory, the next movie I remember seeing was Ice Pirates. And I remember seeing it in a drive-in. I think my my parents took us to a drive-in, and I think there was a, it was a double, it clearly would have been a double feature, and it was playing with something else. And I think they took me because I was a, I'm a little kid, and I loved Star Wars. Everything was Star Wars, right? So this is an outer space movie. Let's go. And Ron Perlman was actually in that movie where basically like the most precious commodity is in the galaxy at this point is water. And the way you store and transport water is as blocks of ice. So ice pirates, right? They, they go and steal ice. Um, it's been a while since I've seen it. I know I adored it as a kid, but I think that was just because I was a kid. I'd have to go back and revisit it again at some point. But anyway, thanks for bringing that one up, uh, friend. All right. Next up, Murray Reich writes. I can imagine when they reopen the theaters, John will be so excited. I will be. Uh, once he walks in the theater, he realizes they're only showing bad movies like Battlefield Earth, Catwoman, Highlander 2, Cats, The Room, uh, Showgirls, and they're all in 3D. Dude, that's my nightmare. That's my nightmare. You know, somebody asked me the other day, actually. They said, you know, John, let's say theaters open, but the only movie that's playing is Catwoman. Do you go back to the theaters? Because everybody knows I'm itching to get back into a movie theater. And I was like, my, I, I wanted to instantly say, of course I go. But man, Catwoman, I was like, ah, I don't know. I got to think about that to make matters worse. You want to show Catwoman in useless 3D? Mm, you know what? I think I'll just stay home for a couple more weeks as badly as I want to get back into the movie theaters as much as anybody else. Uh, I think I would probably stay home for a couple more weeks. I think I would just have to stay home for a few more weeks. All right. Uh, Murray Reich also writes, uh, do you still have to socially distance yourself with others if you're in a room that's playing in 3D? I get it because no one's in there anyway. Uh, well done, Murray. I'll give you a little... I'll give you a little bit for that. Murray also writes, uh, Jet Li and Jason Statham were actually uh, were, to, were actually in another movie together in 2007's War. It wasn't great, but it was interesting. I don't remember that. Hold a second here. Uh, War, 2007, IMDb. It's not the one with uh, Tom Hart. No, 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 no. It's not the one. Why do I not remember? You know, I'm looking at the poster and the poster looks familiar, but I don't remember this. Huh. Uh, just to give you guys a sense of what it is uh, Murray's talking about here. 
Uh, there's this. This is the war, and it's got like Statham and Jet Li. It looks like a bad Photoshop. I mean, this is this looks this a bad poster, man. That is bad compositing Photoshop, and of course the background is just exploding flames. That's a bad eighty style poster right there. So I do not remember this one. If you guys do, jump down in the comments uh, and let them know because I don't remember that one as a matter of fact. But the poster does look familiar because it's so bad. All right, David Dilks writes. I had asked you a question and suggested that the Star Wars prequels should have been deliberately written non-canon, and you replied that fans wouldn't like it. I was wondering if you could elaborate. Wouldn't it be better for the fans, Vader, Yoda, and Palpatine, if it was an Elseworlds story? With Vader and Anakin as two different people, uh, you can show Vader kill Anakin and Mace on Mustafar and flow right into A New Hope. I don't see the point of showing Anakin becoming Vader if you're going to make a mystery uh, in the next film. Uh, likewise, if you're going to do the Dagobah scene about a great warrior and reveal Frank Oz's small Yoda, then wouldn't it be better to show a different big Yoda in the prequels? For contrast, shouldn't the prequels only uh, shouldn't the prequels only honor a new hope? No, see, listen, here's why that would never worked. Here's why that would never worked. Those movies lose any relevancy and they lose any interest if they're not a part of the Star Wars universe. Like the reason people were excited about the new movies is because we're going back to the universe we know. We're going back. This is the Obi-Wan. You know, this Hugh McGregor kid playing Obi-Wan, this is the, the Obi-Wan that we know and love already. Just the younger version of him. You know, that is Anakin. We've been waiting to see Anakin. Now, this is all before the movie came out, but still, this is Anakin doing that. Ah, oh, Senator Palpatine, we know who he is. You know, it's it's the fact that it is the same universe. If it was just Elseworlds stuff, then it's not really Star Wars. It's not really Star Wars at all. Look, I'm not saying the same rules apply to every franchise, but there's something about canon that makes Star Wars special, knowing that these stories all take place in the same universe, in the same world. Now, some might say, well, John, why don't you have the same philosophy when it comes to comic book films? Because you say it's cool that comic book films do these little Elseworlds stories. Yes, because even comic books have changed their stories dozens of times over the years. Characters' origin stories have been changed and altered dozens of times. Uh, Backgrounds, whether it's New 52, whatever. I mean, they've rebooted, reset, changed things, changed their history so many times in the comics that it becomes an okay We just assume that. We just assume that. Not everything is always necessarily in the same universe. And that's why I feel like you can do that in comic book films where not everything has to be shared cinematic universe. You can do a Joker movie that's outside of the DCEU. You can do that because that's what the comics have always done. Star Wars, to me, was a different place. What makes it special is that you're in the same universe as all that happens. When you watch The Mandalorian... You are in the same universe, a different time, a different place, but you're in that same reality as all the other events of Star Wars you've ever seen. And there's something about that that adds to the appeal of it, particularly back when The Phantom Menace was about to come out. It was our first return to the world of Star Wars. And if you had just come out and said, hey, this is Star Wars-ish, but it's not connected to that other Star Wars, it's a totally, I don't think anybody would have been excited about it. I don't think anybody would have been excited about it, to be honest. I think there would have been maybe some intrigue, but I I really don't think it would have worked for most people. So 
I think, uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of, now. Look, I could be dead wrong about that. Of course I could. But my initial thoughts is that's how I kind of see uh, people would be reacting to it. All right. Thanks for writing that in, man. Uh, uh, an anonymous anonymous viewer also writes, say what you will about Rise of Skywalker. But the best part of the movie was Ian McDiarmid as the emperor. He absolutely rocked in that film. And you could just tell that he was having so much fun as Palps again. I was legit terrified of him. Oh, I, I agree. Like, I didn't like the story they gave him. I don't like that they explained how the hell he was even there. I don't even like the things that he did. But just seeing Ian McDiarmid as the Emperor again was awesome to see. And you know that people were excited about it because when they played the first trailer for it at Star Wars Celebration, um, and you hear his laugh at the end, the audience went nuts. The audience went nuts and the lights came up on stage and Ian McDiarmid is standing there on stage and everybody went nuts again. And then, of course, he said the, the one line he said, run it again and in his Palpatine voice. Everybody went crazy. Everyone wanted to see him back as Emperor. I didn't like what they did with him, but I agree. It was really cool seeing him in the makeup again, saying the lines. I, I, dig, did, I did dig that part, even if I didn't like what they did with him. All right. Curtis Lopez writes. Did you hear both Robert Rodriguez and Peyton Reed are directing episodes of Mandalorian season two? Yeah, we discussed that a little bit earlier in the show. I like it. You know, and I admit, I'm not the biggest Robert Rodriguez fan in the world. I like what he did. I thought he did a nice job with Alita Battle Angel, to be honest with you. I think, thought he did a nice little job. I mean, he had James Cameron backing him up, but still, I thought he did a nice little job with that. Robert Rodriguez, to me, is a bit of a hit and miss director. But again, I think this is the perfect kind of project for him. I think he could do something really cool with it. And Peyton Reed, I've been really enjoying his stuff with the Ant-Man stuff. And so, yeah, I like it a lot, Curtis. All right, Taki75 writes, For me, Infinity War is a better movie, pacing, consistency, structure. But Endgame was more emotional and gave me uh, the best theatrical experience of my life. I will never forget how the crowd erupted during the big four moments, cap-lifting Mjolnir, on your left, Avengers Assemble, and I am Iron Man. No, I... I agree for the most part. Infinity War was the better movie. Infinity War to me is just from start to finish as an overall film, I thought it was a better movie. And I would even argue that while Endgame delivers those big moments, well, those big moments are only big moments because of Infinity War. You know what I mean? Like it's Infinity War as a movie that makes on your left have any purpose or meaning. It's Infinity War that gives any meaning to seeing Spider-Man swing through the portal and everybody getting excited. It's Infinity War that makes Endgame all of its great moments, right? So, and and I get it. I, I really enjoy Infinity War. If you guys saw, I did, I ranked the $46 billion films of all time and I ranked Endgame rather high. Uh, I like Endgame very, very much. But I agree. I think Infinity War is the better film. And even those big highlight moments, which are in Endgame, they owe their highlight moments and they get the reaction they do, I believe, because of what was done in Infinity War. But hey, listen, they're both great. Uh, but I just prefer Infinity War out of the two. All right. Thanks for writing that in, man. All right. Uh, next up, Pelican Mike writes, over under 20%. Uh, 
Thomasin McKenzie ends up in the new Star Wars movie. She played Elsa in Jojo Rabbit for Taika, uh, and she is in The Last Night in Soho, co- uh, co-written by Wilson Carnes, who that's being directed by uh, Edgar Wright, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and Wilson Carnes, of course, wrote 1917. I'd also love to see George McKay from 1917 make the leap to the big movie like this. I'm going to go, you know, 20% is a low number. It's a legit number, but it's low. I'll go... I'll go under because it, it assumes a couple of things. Number one, there may not be any character in there that is right for her, right? We have no character that's that gender at that age uh, and that stature. We just don't have a character like that. So you don't just throw in an actor just for the sake of having the actor there. So I think there's a possibility. I do think there's a possibility, but I'm going to go under percent because a lot of other stars have to align for that to happen. So I think there's a chance, but I'm going to take the under on that one, Mike. I'm going to take the under on 20%. All right. Uh, Ryan Turbuco writes, Hey, John. So thanks to you and your recommendation, I decided to go and buy some Zevia Cola, which I've got in my cup right now. I am not sponsored by Zevia, but they did send me one case of Zevia Cola with a grand total worth of about $22. So Thank you for that, and I'm drinking it and enjoying it. Uh, but anyway, Zevia Cola a couple of weeks ago. Holy crap, it's tasty. I've probably spent about $100. By the way, Zevia, I hope you're watching that. Because of me, somebody spent 100 bucks on your product. Uh, close to $100 just trying as many different flavors as I can. It's so good. I'll tell you what, man. I've really, my taste buds have adjusted to it. So, like, when I run out of Zevia, I'll drink a Diet Pepsi, but now I don't like diet pepsi as much because my taste buds have kind of attuned to zevia so again somebody's asking okay what's zevia long story short i was drinking a lot of cola realized how many consuming that many calories was really bad for me so i switched to diet cola but then i realized oh my god look how crappy these artificial sweeteners are for you so i decided to stop that and i found zevia which is a cola that does not use artificial sweeteners um and so and i've really enjoyed it I really enjoyed it. So that's what Ryan is. So I'm glad you tried it out, Ryan. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I really should be sponsored by Zevia Cola. Uh, Russell Amador writes, Hey, John. Last time I heard, I don't think you t- you tuned into Tiger King. Well, I did. I just didn't like it. Now, granted, I only checked out about a half hour of it, though. I only watched about a half hour, and then I checked out. Uh, everybody keeps telling me it gets a lot better after that, and maybe I should go back and try it again. Uh, but you probably should give it a watch to get you prepared for Nicolas Cage take on Joe Exotic. Talk about perfect casting. That's what Rob said, too. It's going to be a damn laugh riot seeing this. I cannot wait. Yeah, I listen. Even just from the limited stuff that I saw, Nicolas Cage playing that character is, I don't like using the word, but it is perfect. It's absolutely perfect. So it's going to be bonkers to see. Now, what's what's really going to be interesting to see is how fast do they develop this? Is it going to be another year and a half before we see it? Will it be shorter than that? I mean, I don't know. It's going to be series, a scripted series. So it's going to be interesting to see how fast it comes. And I will at some point have to sit back down and get myself into it again. My buddy's soul is constantly telling me, Campia, you got to go and watch Tiger King. I'm like, okay. So at some point, I'm probably going to have to do that. Rodrigo Ramirez writes, Tom Cruise might as well play Evil Knievel in a biopic. Yep. I mean, again, I just, with everything from flying the helicopter himself to hanging off the side of a giant jumbo jet as it takes off into the air to now wanting to go to space, it just really feels to me, and I mentioned this earlier in the show, that that right now Tom Cruise is really focused on legacy. He's trying to establish his legacy. 
And going to space, no doubt. And then, yeah, but the thing is, if he played Eva Knievel, he would actually want to do all the stunts himself, and he will die. Um, anyway, Patrick Conway writes, Can't believe it's been eight years since the Avengers came out. I remember, that's right, yesterday was the eight-year anniversary that Avengers came out. I can remember being 12 and watching it with my class, and now I'm 20 and finished school. It Here's the thing. The MCU has now been around long enough that for a lot of us, it's been around as long as we can remember. Right. It's hard to think of an era right now when we didn't have I mean, it's not that long ago, but still they've been so prominent for so many years now. It's hard to remember when as a movie going culture, we didn't have the MCU. It's hard to remember right now because of how prevalent it's been and how how many years it's been now. It's hard to remember when comic book films weren't the biggest thing at the box office. It, it is crazy. Like you're saying, you saw Avengers when you were 12 and now you're done school. Right? It is weird how quickly the sands shift. It's really weird when you think about that way. All right. Thanks a lot for that, Patrick. Uh, next up, uh, Buddy Christ, the original Jedi writes, uh, one of two. Hey, dudes, with all due respect, I find Snyder's Batman versus Superman to be more uh, a love letter and an over the top hard on for Frank Miller uh, and the Dark Knight Returns uh, to, for Frank Miller than than a work of art. Batman got played in that film. He was more muscle and big dick than brain. My my hope is that Matt Reeves balances Batman's intelligence and his physicality, uh, not to shit on Snyder. But his character development and storytelling are lackluster at best, with all due respect. Um, yes and no. I mean, look. What he did with Batman, and remember, it was the first movie that he had Batman in it. And Batman was sharing screen time with a separate story going on with Clark Kent as Superman. I think he did about as much in the terms of character development. For instance, character development, listen. I agree, Zack Snyder's strength is not narrative. I agree. He is a visual storyteller and a damn good one. I agree, narrative character development is not his strongest suit. I agree. But starting that movie with Bruce Wayne arriving in Metropolis amidst the battle of the gods as Superman and Zod are, are wreaking havoc in their battle and seeing the destruction and Bruce Wayne being on the ground, seeing the chaos that it was causing and hearing his friend die on the phone and then finding that little girl who just lost her parents. I'm telling you, one of my favorite shots ever in the history of movies, and I'm not saying Batman versus Superman is one of the great comic book movies. I'm not suggesting that, but one of my favorite shots of all time is that moment when Bruce saves the little girl and he's got this little girl in his arms. He is the dark knight. He's like, where's your mom? And she points to a pile of rubble. My heart broke. But more than that, as, as the visual storyteller that he is, Snyder cuts, does a hard cut to a camera shot, slightly elevated in the sky, looking down. It's a tighter shot, but cuts to this brilliant shot of Bruce looking at the girl, this moment of anguish on his face, and then he turns his face to the sky to see Superman and Zod battling and the rage. We saw 
without dialogue. A broken man breaking even further. Because like Bruce Wayne is a broken man, all right? Batman is a, is a little bit broken in the head. But we saw a broken man break even further. And as he looked into the sky, like, love or hate Batman versus Superman, you've got to respect that shot, man. As he turned to the sky and, the, and it turned from the sorrow and compassion of the little girl and then turning and his face changing to one of pure, unmitigated anger and rage. And to see in that moment a change in this character, a change that they then later in the movie confirm in his conversations with Alfred and stuff like that. And Alfred, uh, you know, lamenting the changes that have happened in him since the arrival of the Superman. That was some good character development. T to me, that was some good character development. And look, Bruce figured out a lot of things, but you're right. They didn't emphasize the detective aspect of Batman in that movie. You're right. They didn't emphasize that. And we know Matt Reeves will. But for me and my money, that is still my favorite. While I agree, there was a little bit of a deficiency in how much of the de detective aspect of him that they showed. To me and my money, it is still my favorite incarnation of Batman. I'm not saying it's a better Batman movie than The Dark Knight. I'm just saying as an incarnation of the character. That is still my favorite incarnation of that character. Uh, and, and, and a lot of that has to do with the approach that Zack, Zack Snyder took with it. And I think Matt Reeves will give us a lot more of the, the detective. I just hope that Matt Reeves doesn't swing the pendulum too far the other way, you know? Because I'm sorry, but it's not the Dark Knight striking fear into the hearts of villains if we don't see him kicking some ass. But, but So I just hope he doesn't go too far where the entire movie is just Batman in a library doing research, right? I just hope he doesn't swing it too far the other way. That's my only hope. All right, thanks for writing that in, buddy Christ. Appreciate that, man. And thanks for supporting the channel, dude. All right, Anthony Lucalano writes, Today is Richard E. Grant's birthday. Oh, I know what Rob would say. Uh, with nail and eye is what he would say. Anyway, Richard Grant's birthday. What is Rob's favorite film of his? I Oh, you mentioned it yourself. I loved him in With Nail and Eye. Yep, and he just recently got his Academy Award nomination with Can You Ever Forgive Me that he starred in with Melissa McCarthy. And oh, wait, wait, did he? Yeah, I, yeah, he did get an Academy Award nomination for that. Did he not? Wait a sec. I, I know Melissa McCarthy got one. Hold on a second. Uh, can you ever forgive me? Let me let me just double check this. I know McCarthy got an Academy Award nomination. I thought he did too. Yes, he did. Okay, so Can You Ever Forgive Me was actually nominated for three Academy Awards. It was nominated for Best Performance by an Actress in a Leading Role for Melissa McCarthy. It was nominated for Best Screenplay. And it was nominated for Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role in Richard E. Grant. Right, correct, correct, correct. Um, I am not as well-versed in the career of Richard E. Grant. I've seen him in a number of things, and I've always liked him. Uh, I didn't like his character in Rise of Skywalker, which I thought was a bit of a waste. But I, listen, I know it's just recent, but I really did love him in uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? And happy birthday to Mr. Richard E. Grant. I'm sorry that Rob wasn't here to take that question. He would have loved getting that one. All right, Dynamite V1 writes, Man, I love old school action and fighting films. Just the other day, I rewatched re two Jean-Claude Van Damme classics, Sudden Death, and double impact. But my all-time favorite is JCVD film is still... It's got to be Bloodsport. You are next. It's got to be Bloodsport. I mean, Kickboxer was also fantastic. Sudden Death is great. It's a, it was a kind of a different Jean-Claude Van Damme. 
Time Cop, Double Dragon. Um, and by the way, you should probably check out that uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme show he did uh, not so long ago, too. But I, I am completely with you, Dynamite. That Bloodsport, I don't know how many times I went to the theaters to go watch that. I remember I was a kid, but I still remember I would get on the bus. I lived in Hamilton, Ontario. I lived up on the mountain. And so I would take the Kenilworth bus down the mountain, which took you down the mountain, took you all the way to Center Mall. Uh, I don't even know if Center Mall is still there in Hamilton, but there were movie theaters in Center Mall. And it would drop me right off at that at that mall. And me and my buddy a couple times, at least at least six or seven times, we'd say, hey, let's go watch Bloodsport again. And we go and get on the bus and go, yay, when he do the splits and the the stupid look on his face after he's, you know, he's got the wrestling stuff in his eyes. He can't see, but it's Bloodsport, man. It's Bloodsport. It's always got to be it. Bloodsport is the one. Bloodsport is the one. I'm completely with you on that, Dynamite. By the way, one of my favorite martial arts action heroes of all time uh, was a performer by the name of Shokasagi, who did a bunch of the ninja films, like Revenge of the Ninja and stuff like that. He actually did a movie. Uh, I think something an eagle. I can't remember the name of it now, but him and Jean-Claude Van Damme did a movie together. It's Falcon and Eagle. Hold on a second. Now, now I've got to figure it out. Uh, uh, Shokasagi. Let me just go to his IMDb here quickly. Uh, Enter the Ninja. Uh, let's see. Let, where is it? Uh, Ninja 3, Domination, Pray for Death, Rage of Honor, Black Eagle. That was it. Black Eagle is the one he did. Let me see if I can bring this up here. Black Eagle is the one that he did with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, when Jean-Claude Van Damme, this is a 1988 movie, man. I was, I was a kid watching this, but yeah. And, and Shokasagi actually played like the American hero. Uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme was a KGB agent and a uh, lot of fun, stupid, dumb fun. But if you're in the mood for like just a stupid, dumb, fun, little, a little, uh, that eighties style kind of martial arts movie, I, I would recommend checking out black Eagle. It's got a horrible 3.8 out of 10 on IMDb, and I can't even argue with it, but I ate it up because I ate up all of Sh Shokasagi's stuff. Okay, anyway, uh, let's move on here. Uh, next up is Cervantes Family Rights. Hey, John, have you seen the movie Prisoners with Hugh Jackman? We've talked about that a lot, especially in recent days. Uh, I love that movie. I, th I think it's my favorite Denis Villeneuve film, as a matter of fact. Anyway, have you seen the movie Prisoners with Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal? It's so good. And some as someone who has a daughter, the movie hits me. Yeah, well, I mean, it th that movie doesn't hit you. That movie punches you in the face. And, you know, we also talked a lot about Paul Dano because that was Paul Dano in that, right? Hold on, let me just put uh, look, look this up here. Uh, I believe it was Paul Dano that ends up being uh, uh, the guy. Hold on a second. It was, yeah, Voyodes, Mirabella, Mercy. Yep, it was Paul Dano. Yeah, Paul Dano, who, as an actor, he's going to be in the new Batman movie, by the way, Paul Dano, speaking of prisoners and speaking of Batman. Um, Paul Dano, I'm telling you this right now, he would be considered a much higher profile actor today if somebody other than Daniel Day-Lewis was the star of There Will Be Blood. Because I'm telling you, Paul Dano maybe should have won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, at very minimum, he should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actor in There Will Be Blood. Now, he got a BAFTA nomination for it, but here's the, because he was so brilliant in There Will Be Blood, 
The problem is for Paul Dano is that Daniel Day Lewis gave what I consider to be personally the greatest lead act male acting performance in the history of cinema. I personally feel that Daniel Day Lewis in There Will Be Blood gave the single greatest lead performance male lead performance in the history of cinema. And because he did and everybody talked, I drink your milkshake. Like everybody talked about that. Everybody overlooked Paul Dano, who was exceptional in that movie. So good in that movie. And uh, it showed again also, as a matter of fact, uh, in Prisoners. He was great in that as the supporting role. But Jackman was great again. My favorite Denis Villeneuve film. Hopefully Dune will take over that spot. Uh, Dan Ketchum writes, I assume this will be on the huge starship Musk is building and not the tiny dragon too. Otherwise, CGI would make more sense. Yeah, you got to imagine it's got to be something that a story could take place in, even if it's only for five or ten minutes of the movie. Again, like Rob pointed out, just because they're going to do it in space does not mean the whole movie is going to take place in space. It might be one scene. It might be a couple of scenes. I don't know. Maybe it will be the huge movie, but you got to assume it's going to be something a little bit larger, Dan. I think I think you're right on the money with that. All right. James Hoffman writes trailer drop for Netflix comedy Space Force starring Steve Carell looks really funny. Can't wait your thoughts. I thought it looked really funny and I can't believe I didn't know. This is what I asked. You know, Rob and I were talking before the show started today and we were both taken aback that John Malkovich was in it. I didn't know that. And I asked Rob, how do you have an iconic legendary actor like John Malkovich as a series regular and you are not marketing the hell out of it. Don't get me wrong. It is Steve Carell's show. But how are you not like talking about that more that starring Steve Carell and John Malkovich? I don't know how you're not promoting that more. Shocked the hell of me. Anyway, yeah, I'm with you, James. I thought the trailer had humor. It felt, uh, you know, it felt like it had a lot of pep to it. I liked it. Now, the show might be terrible. Who knows? It's based on an interesting premise. But, you know, if Steve Carell's in there, he got one of the original creators of, of the North American version of The Office. I mean, you got my vote. I'm in there. You got, you know, Schwartz in there, which I like him very much. I just saw him again as John Ralphio, re reprised his role as John Ralphio in the Parks and Rec special, which was great. So, yeah, I liked it a lot, man. All right, Ben Rayner writes, uh, John, hope you're doing well. I am doing well, Ben. Thank you for asking. Uh, have a random question. You don't have to answer if you don't want to. With the lockdown and this whole bunch of new people trying to do home streaming, do you feel lucky you've been doing it for two years and so ahead of most people? Um, I don't know. Maybe. I Look, the fact of the matter is most things I've done, I was one of the first to do it. You know? Like when I, there were movie news websites, but when I was doing movie blogging, I wasn't the first, but I was in that first batch of original people doing movie blogging. And as a matter of fact, I was so early onto it that the domain name, themovieblog.com was available. That's how early I got into it. And so then that, there was that. I did the world's first movie podcast, the, the first podcast ever based on movies. Uh, I did. It was the movie. The movie blog audio edition was the first ever. As a matter of fact, when I started it, the term podcast wasn't even being used yet. They weren't even they weren't even using the term podcast yet when I started that. Um, transfer then doing online online video shows about movies. If not the first, we were amongst the first to do that when I was at, at AMC. And I I had to lobby hard with AMC 
for like six months to say, guys, you got to let us do a show. You have to let us do. It's great that we're doing a blog. Because when I first started working with AMC, I was just hired to be in charge of the blog. Like I was starting and developing a blog and they hired me a staff and that was all great. But I pushed them from day one saying, we got to do this in a video format. We got to do this in a video format. And I still remember we were at a comic con and in our hotel room and I was having a conversation with my boss in, in um, he came over, we we're hanging up in my hotel room and we we're having this conversation and he finally gave me and said, okay, you know what? Yeah, let's give it a shot. And we did our first episode of what became AMC movie talk. And we started as a one day a week. And then very soon after that, very soon after that, uh, we were live streaming. Like we were live streaming the show very shortly after that. Like we started off recording it and then we we're doing live streaming. So I've been doing live streaming a lot longer than two years. You know, I, I, I brought live streaming to AMC. Then we carried that over into uh, uh, over to uh, Collider. And uh, yeah, so I've been doing live streaming a lot more than two years. Does that help me right now? I, I don't know if that helps me at all. I mean, it's certainly, I I know a lot of the ins and outs and I know the pitfalls and I know the things to look out for. And I certainly experience a lot of the technical problems that still come with it. But I don't know if I consider myself lucky doing it. I, I think it's just, there's a lot of really good people doing some really good stuff. Uh, there's a lot of really... There's a lot of really not so good people doing some not so good stuff, but there's a lot of good people doing a lot of good stuff. And I think it's just great. And I just think I'm lucky to be a part of it. I think I'm just lucky to be a part of it. Thanks for writing that, Ben. All right. Next up, uh, Wakandan Forever writes, I feel King T'Challa uh, is more impressive a character than his Black Panther persona. What secret identity do you like more than the hero version? Well, I mean, first of all, T'Challa is not a secret identity. Like his whole country knows that the king is the Black Panther. The whole country knows. Um, so I don't know if I would count that as a secret identity, but I get your point. Is there any character who I like their regular persona more than their superhero persona? Man, I don't know. Um, not off the top of my head. I mean, I like Barry Allen a lot, but it depends on which incarnation you're talking about. Um, I certainly prefer Batman. Well, cause Batman... Um, Batman's a little bit different, but obviously I prefer Batman over Bruce Wayne, but Bruce Wayne is a fake mask. Um, you know, there is no differentiating really between Diana and, and Wonder Woman. And so I, it's just a really interesting question. I've never thought about it in those terms. My instant thought is no, I can't think of any regular persona that I think is more interesting than the hero persona. But it's a really, maybe if I think about it more, I might be able to come up with one. That's a really interesting question, dude. All right. Wakanda Forever also writes, um... Uh, where are we at here? I feel... No, that was that. Midnight bar fight. Ewoks versus gremlins. It's time. Oh, Ewoks. Take Ewoks are hunters. They hunt and kill prey. That's what the Ewoks do. They hunt you. They capture you. They don't even have the civilized, you know, courtesy to kill you. No, no, no. They hunt you. They tie you up on a spit. And then they burn you alive while you scream into the night, begging for death. And the Ewoks will just stand around as they burn you alive and cook your flesh while you're still awake and party on. Hey, look at this dude dying. They are savage, brutal hunter killers. Don't let the little teddy bear faces fool you. 
They are savage, brutal hunter killers. That's what the Ewoks are. I will take them in a fight versus the gremlins any day. All right. Uh, let's see here. Raymond Verada writes, I know you don't discuss celebrity news. No, I don't. Uh, but Amanda Palmer announced her separation from Neil Gaiman on Patreon. What intrig- What interesting times. I've heard that you can break up with people now via text, but Patreon? But moving on girls uh neil's single again uh yeah no i i don't like to talk about just the personal paparazzi life of people i i I don't like unless it directly affects a movie unless it has direct impact on a movie or the movies we're watching and then i don't like it although it was funny that apparently when she announced it on patreon neil gaiman didn't know apparently it caught neil gaiman by surprise so Interesting times that you're making now something like that on Patreon. Interesting times, Raymond. You're, you're right. Daniel Hinosa writes, uh, when do you think theaters and restaurants will fully reopen, meaning no mandatory face masks or social distancing like it was before? Oh, no idea. It's impossible to say at this point. It's impossible to say. Look, fact of the matter is, while I want everything to reopen again, the fact of the matter is it is too early. Um, cases continue to spike. They haven't flattened out. They're spiking. We've had, I I think the latest number I read is that we're almost at 70,000 dead in the United States alone. 70,000. I heard a statistic the other day that more Americans have died in the last three months from this pandemic than died in the entirety of the Vietnam War. Think about that. That's huge. And the numbers aren't going down. They're spiking. And I don't know. It's, I feel like, I don't know. I, I feel like we're just moving too fast and trying to get things open again. I, I, I really do. Look, I'm not trying to get political or anything. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just talking about survival. Uh, I feel like uh, we're moving too fast. We're moving too fast. Uh, and I heard that it's over a quarter of a million people worldwide have died of it now. So it, it's horrible stuff. So when can we just fully reopen? No idea no idea there's a lot that needs to happen before we can so i don't know that we'll be back i think we'll we'll be to a point within months that we'll be back to a semblance of normalcy but till we're back to fully normal i just have no idea and i'm no expert on it obviously so take anything i say on the topic with a massive grain of salt but hey yeah who knows daniel who knows i do hope we get there safely but at any rate All right froygon jen writes I've been binge watching TV during this crisis. I think a lot of people have, dude. And for me, the pilot episode is like a movie trailer. I agree. Oftentimes, it will make or break whether I continue watching. That's the purpose of it. Uh, Some of the best TV pods I've seen are for Lost and Newsroom. What are yours? Those are great. The best pilot ever, though, was for the TV series Heroes. That pilot and the ending of the pilot... I was hooked. That was it. Like the pilot was great, but the ending of the pilot episode, season one, episode one of Heroes completely had me hooked. Now, look, there are some shows that I totally love, like Spartacus, that it took a few episodes for me to get into it. Like the first two and a half episodes are some of the worst television I've ever seen. And then it became like my number two or number three favorite show of all time. But as a TV viewer, you should not be expected to have to sit through two hours or three hours. You shouldn't have to be expected to sit through 
three, four, five episodes till it starts to get good. If a showrunner can't get you like a movie, a movie creator, right? A filmmaker. They've got to not only get you into it, they got to get you into it, introduce the characters, introduce the drama going on, develop the drama, flesh it out, have the main plot play out, then head into your third act, bring it all to a big conclusion, and you got to do all of it in two hours. You got to do it all in two hours. There is simply to me no excuse that showrunners should have to expect me as a viewer that I need to get through the first four or five episodes before it starts to make sense and before it starts to make good, starts to get good. There's just no excuse for that. I The onus shouldn't be on me to have to get through it. I'm not saying that the pilot episodes has to be the greatest thing of all time. But listen, shows like Newsroom, boom. I know this show. I am in, invested in this show. Love it. The whole thing about why is America the greatest place in the world to live? I mean, that, that right away it got you. The first episode lost. Boom, instantly got you. First episode of Heroes, boom, instantly gets you. Now, I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying your first episode needs to be your best episode, but there's some TV series that are just like, the first three, four, five, six, seven episodes are just whatever. And it's like, oh yeah, but once you get through that, then you get to episode eight and it really starts to turn up. It's like, what? that shouldn't be on us. If you've got a good show and you've got good characters and you've got a good, interesting story to tell, you should be able to figure out a way to get us invested in that in the first couple of episodes. At least get us into it, you know? Again, as I'm saying that, there are some exceptions to that that I've had. I agree. But for the most part, I just think it's really on the showrunners to make us more interested. And those are some great openings for Aegon. Those are some great episodes. All right. NR99 writes, um, has there been any more movement on the Michael Jackson biopic or do you think uh, it got shelved as you suggested it should? Personally, I agree with you. I've heard of no movement on the Michael Jackson biopic. And to me, I just if you're a studio, I don't know how on earth you make a Michael Jackson biopic. I just don't know how you do it. There are so many people out there who are firm, ardent Michael Jackson supporters and fans. Um, and then there was a whole bunch of people out there who believe the allegations that were levied against him. Personally, I'm very dubious uh, about the allegations, but there's also some pretty sketchy stuff. And so I'm very much in the middle. Like, I, I don't know. I don't care. Whatever. I'm very much in the middle. But if you're a studio, I don't see a road to victory in making a Michael Jackson biopic. There's no way to make that movie that is going to make the general audience happy. There's no way to do it. Because you're either going to make that movie suggesting that he was guilty of the stuff he's been accused of, which is going to piss off half the audience and they'll reject your movie. Or you're going to make a movie suggesting that he was guilty of the things he was accused of, which is going to piss off and anger half the potential audience and create drama and create controversy and... I just don't know that a lot of studios want to get in. And again, if there was a, a way to do it to make people happy, great. Now, somebody suggested to me once, well, John, what if you just make a biopic on Michael Jackson that, you know, looks at his early years, the Jackson 5, going up until he made the Thriller album, like one of the most popular, most important pop albums of all time. What if you just did it up to them? Well, then I'm like, but then you'll still piss off a lot of people who are like, how dare you make a movie about this guy who did this, this, and this? 
and I just, again, I just don't see a way out of it for a studio. So I still consider that if it ever happens, I will be surprised. I'm, I'm not saying it won't ever happen. I'm just saying I think it's a bad idea. And if it does happen, I will be surprised. So, yeah. So, but so, no, I've heard, I've heard no other movement on it myself personally. So maybe it happens. Maybe it doesn't. We'll find out. All right. Adam K. writes. Why does Disney allow profanity in the MCU? I don't have an issue with it, but doesn't it go against their goal to maintain a family-friendly image? Uh, yeah. Again, listen, everybody wants to nitpick and get into arguments about, okay, well then what is family-friendly and what isn't? What should, everybody's an expert. And believe me, I'm as, I'm guilty of this too. I, I am totally guilty of this too. We all are. You are too. Everybody's an expert. Everybody's a world-class expert on what does family-friendly mean? And what should Disney, how should Disney and where should Disney draw their line? Everybody's an expert on it. And I'm, I'm as guilty as this as anybody. Uh, and obviously that came to a big up that Disney didn't want to have a bare ass on the Disney Plus network. Okay, so they took out the bare ass. But... You know, in some of the movies, every once in a while, you know, they'll drop something that Captain America would say, language, right? Um, so, I don't know. I mean, clearly, they they do not make the MCU movies for children. For the most part, they make them child-friendly, for the most part, but they don't make them for children. So, I don't know. Sometimes they let them push the line a little bit. Sometimes they don't. I, I, I mean, I don't know. Again, you'd have to ask Disney about, you know, I would love to sit down with Bob Iger sometime and just say, you know, where is that line? Like for you, for something that's going to be under the Disney brand, you know, where does that line get drawn? And it'd be interesting to hear his, his and I'm sure he would say something along the lines of, well, you know, every movie is different and some things you think will feel more appropriate in one movie and maybe it wouldn't feel as appropriate in another. And it's just all that. I think the, the, the important thing is there's no one hard and fast line or one hard and fast rule. And um, yeah, so when they make something more family friendly, I don't think they necessarily mean everything's going to be G rated, right? So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Next up, uh, Eli writes, do you think the original cuts of Justice League and uh, Suicide Squad were that bad or at the time Warner Brothers just didn't know uh, what they were doing and interfered too much? Well, <clears throat> we'll never know. We'll never know. It is quite possible that like the original cut of Justice League was five times worse than the Justice League we got. That's just a fact. It might have been better. Might, just as much chance it might have been completely worse. Um, and again, you know, every movie you love has had studio involvement. Except when we don't like the movie, we change the word involvement to interference. We call it interference when we don't like the movie. When we do like the movie, we call it studio involvement. Um, but it's the same thing. Right, A lot of people will bash on Warner Brothers for studio interference when in reality is they don't interfere in their movies nearly as much as Marvel interferes in theirs. Kevin Feige is the most interfering studio head there is. He sets the rules. You got to do this in this movie and you got to do this and I'm going to tell you how that's going to go and blah, blah, blah. But it works. 
And the result is we get these great movies. And so we don't complain about Kevin Feige's interference. We don't complain about it because it turns out great and we love it and we enjoy it. But it is, make no mistake, interference. You know, Ryan Coogler talked about, you know, Ryan Coogler, you know, said I had complete freedom. But at the same time, then he'll tell some stories about things he wanted to do in the movie that Kevin Feige said no. And a couple of things that Kevin Feige insisted he include in the movie. So he does it. You know, Joss Whedon talks about how in his first Avengers movie, probably the most important comic book movie ever made because of where it's brought us. But Joss Whedon tells a story about how much like Sam Raimi wasn't going to Sam Raimi wanted Vulture instead of Venom in Spider-Man 3. Sony stepped in and said, actually, Venom is really popular. We want you to put Venom in the movie. We call that Sony interfering. Joss Whedon, he didn't have Black Widow in his movie. He wanted Wasp. Joss, uh, Kevin Feige said, hey, Josh, really believe in you. But no, take out Wasp and you need to have Black Widow in this movie. But we didn't call that interference because we loved the movie. So we called it studio involvement right we give marvel a pass on it not because they're marvel but because it worked but then when it doesn't work and we don't like the movie then we call it interference Eh, it is what it is listen even peter jackson talks about how much involvement you know new line and warner brothers had with the lord of the rings films but we don't talk about it we don't talk about it because the movies ended up being legendary. And so we don't talk about it. But when the movie ends up being bad, then we slap the label interference on it. Or even when it's not bad, just when we don't like the movie, we slap the label interference on it and we call it interference. When we like the movie, it's not interference. It's involvement, you know. So that is what we do. And I, I'm guilty of that, too. But that is just what we as film fans kind of do. All right, next up, uh, Preston Bell writes, John, what movie was your first midnight showing? Mine was Spider-Man 2 uh, with Tobey Maguire in 04. My first midnight screening uh, was Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, but I'm pretty sure 1999, Star Wars The Phantom Menace was my first midnight screening for obvious reasons. <laughs> so that was, that was my very, very first midnight screening. Um, and, uh, which started a long love affair with me going to midnight screenings until midnight screenings became 11 PM screenings, which then became 10 PM screenings, which then became 9 PM screenings. And now movies, when they're supposed to open on Friday, they actually open on Thursday night at 7 PM, right? So gone are the midnight screening days. Yeah. But my first one, dude, I still remember the exact theater I went to. It was in Toronto. Technically it was in Oakville. But uh, nobody knows where Oakville is, so I just call it Toronto. Uh, it was in Oakville was the first midnight screening I went to go see. Uh, even though I had tickets already for another thing, I real I found out that a new theater had just opened up and they just announced that they were going to do midnight screenings of Phantom Menace. So I rushed and got tickets for that and then we went that night. But anyway, that was my first midnight screening. Uh, all right. Michael uh, Goetz writes, uh, any word on if there will be another Cloverfield? I thought, if, if if I'm not mistaken, I thought I heard them talking about it. God, I hope not. That last Cloverfield movie was garbage. That last movie. Listen, that Cloverfield movie, they surprised everybody. Oh, look, everybody's going straight to Netflix and it, it drops tomorrow. And we were all like, what? Wow. And then we saw it. It's like, holy crap, that was a bag of shit. That movie sucks. Uh, now we know why they dropped it on Netflix. Um but I know that we we've talked about there being some development on, on more Cloverfield stuff. There are certainly other things to investigate with it. 
But right now, I'm not sure off the top of my head. Not sure off the top of my head. All right. Ethan Holgate writes. Hey, John, I know you're uh, you're all for remakes. I love the lawnmower. Man, I remember that movie with Pierce Brosnan and Jeff, uh, Jeffrey uh, Fahey. Uh, do you think they'll remake it one day? Yes. Actually, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong about this, but I believe back when I, I it was probably even before Collider, I think it would have been in the AMC days. I could swear I remember us doing a story about them developing a lawnmower man remake. I mean, listen, uh, honestly, when you look at lawnmower man, and what it's about today, it makes even more sense with technology being what it is today. It makes even more sense for a story like that to be in a modern context. And I could swear I remember us talking about it back in the AMC days. So we're going back years about them wanting to do another one. But let me uh, uh, for, so forget whatever the old thing was. Yes, I believe at some point we'll get a lawnmower man remake because it just makes even more sense today, much like Last Starfighter. Like last, the premise of the last Starfighter makes even more sense today than it did in the era that it came out, and I think a Lawnmower Man makes even more sense today than in the era that it came out. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say, Ethan, I'm going to say yes. I think yes. All right. So Hill writes, um, if Chef's show is any indicator of potential upcoming Mandalorian directors, what do you think is the likelihood of Sam Raimi doing an episode? I have not seen that. I've, I'm not all caught up on the Chef's. By the way, if you don't know what Sahil is talking about, John Favreau has a show on Netflix called Chef, where it's just him and this one celebrity chef, and they go around and talk to different world class chefs and other celebrities, and they just come in, and they cook stuff, and it's literally Chef. Obviously inspired by his movie Chef, which is great, by the way. If you've never seen, you should absolutely see his movie Chef. But his Netflix series Chef is awesome. There's even an episode where they go to this restaurant and they're sitting down and him and his celebrity chef dude. And they're with Robert Downey Jr. and with Tom Holland. Talking about, and it's just it's awesome to watch. He's got one with um, uh, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. Which was which was great. That was a really funny one. He's got one with uh, obviously we were talking about uh, Robert Rodriguez uh, was in there. He's got one. I mean, he's got a lot with a lot of different people. It's really fun to check out. I haven't seen that one. I haven't seen that one. Now, I don't think we're going to hear about any more directors because there's only eight episodes in season two. And we already know John Favreau is doing multiple episodes. So that probably means he's doing two. Dave Filoni is at least doing one. Uh, Rick uh, Famuyiwa is at least doing one. Robert Rodriguez is at least doing one. And, uh, Peyton Reed is at least doing one. You've got to so do. There's an extra one for John Favreau doing it. So now there's only two episodes left. Well, I got to imagine Dave Filoni will probably do a second one as well. And Dave Famuyiwa did two in the first season. He might be doing two again. So right there, there's all eight episodes. So I don't know that there's even any room for it. I think we might know all of our directors now. I think we now know all of our directors for season two. I don't think we're going to hear about it anymore, let alone Sam Raimi. But who knows? Maybe in the future, he's a little busy. I mean, he is in the Disney universe right now, right? It looks like he's doing Doctor Strange too, so he's in the family. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be shocked if we found out he did. He was at some point, maybe not this coming season, but maybe in season three. All right, Christopher Mendez writes, uh, who that we haven't seen yet from the Star Wars universe, might we see in season two of The Mandalorian? I heard a rumor that a young Luke might appear. I certainly hope not. I certainly hope not. See, here's the thing. I have been screaming for years 
for Star Wars to stop shrinking their universe. All they do, all they've done for years, even in the movies that I like, but all they've done for years is keep shrinking the Star Wars universe. You know, one of the things that I usually say is this. You want to know if you live in a big town or a small town? Here's how you find out. Walk out your front door and how long can you go before bumping into somebody you know? If you go out your front door and you're bumping into people you know within five or ten minutes, chances are you live in a pretty small town. If you walk out your front door and you can walk around for hours without ever bumping into somebody you know, you probably live in Los Angeles or New York or Chicago or some big, big city, right? I feel like ever since the original Star Wars trilogy, every time we open the door, step out of our door to walk into the town of Star Wars, before we even get off our front porch, we're bumping into people we know. Oh, look, here's Yoda. Okay. Oh, look, there's Darth Vader. Okay. Oh, look, there's Han Solo. Okay. Like every time we step out the door, we are just instantly bumping into people. They keep shrinking. The Star Wars universe was supposed to be this big, vast universe has been shrinking more and more and more. It's just this tiny little thing. The Star Wars universe is this tiny little thing. And, And I really don't like that, even though they've made like they made things that I've loved, like Rogue One and whatever. Yeah. But one of the things that I've loved about Mandalorian is that we literally stepped into that universe and while we recognize the universe, we're not bumping into anybody we know. We've never met Mando. We've never met uh, Carl Weathers and we've never met Werner Herzog and we've never met any of these characters and any of these people. And to me, that's part of the appeal of Mandalorian to me. And it's not a big coincidence that Like one of the, like my least favorite episode of the entire season, actually the only episode I disliked was that one episode that Dave Filoni directed where they go to Tatooine because like every scene in that movie was, look everybody, it's the hangar that the Millennium Falcon was in. Remember that? Ooh, look everybody. He just walked into the cantina. Remember the cantina from the original Star Wars? Like I just, I hate that. I hated that. And look, Luke is my all-time favorite Star Wars character. But no, I don't want them bringing Luke into it. I don't want them bringing in characters we know. Keep expanding the universe. That's what Mandalorian has done for me. Mandalorian has expanded the Star Wars universe. And I just would hate to see them really throw the gears into reverse and start to shrink the universe again. But anyway, I hope none. My answer is... You know, who would I like to see? None. Keep expanding the universe. There are trillions of characters and hundreds of thousands of worlds and all this kind of stuff. Stop making us trip over characters we've already met. Anyway, that's my thought on that, Christopher. All right. Uh, Single Step Entertainment writes, I looked up online a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket costs on average $57 million per launch. Uh, hey, they make films for $100 million plus, so yeah. Why not? Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, whatever they do, single step, whatever they do with this movie that they're trying to do with Tom Cruise in space, it's going to be expensive. I mean, we're, we're going to be talking. It might be the most expensive film ever made. It could very well be the single most expensive film ever made. I mean, just to launch the thing, 57 million, just to launch. Not to mention whatever you got to pay Tom Cruise. This this will be 
even if they just go up to shoot a five minute scene, this is going to be the most expensive film in history. It's it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. But it would be the first movie ever filmed in space. And I mean, come on, who's not going to rush out to the theaters to see Tom Cruise in an action film in outer space where they really went to outer space? A lot of people are going to go see it, and that's why I don't think they're going to be shy about spending a lot of money on it. All right. Uh, the Last Shady Walking Rights. Watch Spirited Away for the first time yesterday. Amazing movie. It is wonderful. It is uh, my wife Anne's second favorite of uh, the Ghibli films. Uh, uh, my neighbor Totoro is, is like her favorite. But uh, yeah, I mean, in the vein of Howl's Moving Castle and all that kind of stuff. And it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. And actually, there was... Oh, gosh. Now, am I forgetting? There was talk about a North American version of Spirit Away being made. I don't know if that actually went anywhere or not, but uh, that is a great recommendation. Guys, if you have not checked this movie out, please take The Last Shady's recommendation here and do check that out. I, I think you'll enjoy it. Listen, not all uh, Studio Ghibli and stuff like that, not all of their films are for everybody. Like, uh, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. They're not all for everybody. I think Spirited Away is a movie that... Just film lovers can enjoy. I really do. And they've got a number of films that are like that. And I think that's one of them. So good recommendation, man. All right. Daniel uh, Manzarais writes, I'm sure I'm butchering that. In Star Wars Clone Wars, they include a scene from Revenge of the Sith. And it was exactly the same as in the movie. Only difference was that it was cartoon version. Uh, is that considered breaking canon? If not, can they do the same with Obi-Wan versus Maul for Obi-Wan series? Uh, well, I don't watch Clone Wars, so I don't know. Uh, at least not the newest season, but it seems to me that if it's the exact same scene and the only difference is that it was an animated form, then I, I don't see why that's breaking canon. I, I don't think that's breaking canon. Now, if they have the exact same scene, but something very fundamentally different happens in the scene, like... It, let's, for example, say in the live action movie, two Jedi are sitting at a lunch table and the one Jedi says to the other, you did a wonderful job with those negotiations, fellow Jedi. And the Jedi says back to him, thank you. I appreciate your help. Okay. If that was the scene in the live action movie, and then they have the exact same scene in animated for, form, right? And it's two Jedis now animated sitting down and the one Jedi turns to the other and says, I think you did a really good job with those negotiations and your mother's a whore. And then the other Jedi goes, how dare you, sir? And they both pull out their lightsaber and start fighting. Well, now you're breaking canon. But if it's the exact same thing, I'm trying to imagine now a Jedi saying your mother's a whore. I would give anything now to see a Jedi character say your mother's a whore. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm going to have that in my head. So. If it's just the same scene, but just done in anime form, that is not breaking canon. You can't do that with Maul and Obi-Wan because Maul just all of a sudden shows up. Maul showing up was never part of Obi-Wan's story. Obi-Wan's just hanging out one day. From Obi-Wan's perspective, Obi-Wan's just hanging out one day. And then all of a sudden, hey, I'm Darth Maul. I'm alive and I'm here to kill you. Boom, 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 boom. Oh, I'm dead. I mean, that wouldn't make any sense in the series. That would make no sense in the series. So again, I don't know the specific scene you're talking about that was in Clone Wars as it related to the live action film because I didn't watch it. But if it was just the animated version, I don't see that doesn't break canon. I, I think it's perfectly fine. They, it's not breaking canon. All right. Uh, C. Blakemore writes, uh, 
Our side break more rights. Hey, John, I've never I, I've heard New Mutants is going straight to streaming. It's on Amazon Prime available to pre-order. Yeah, ignore that. Um, here's the thing, because there have been other movies over the years that people freaked out when there was a pre-order. Turns out it's just listen, Amazon regularly. I'm not saying every time, but Amazon and stuff like that regularly put pre-order for a film up even before a movie comes out in theaters, but you can pre-order it well in advance. I'm not saying that's the normal practice. And listen, we've talked many times about the fact that, hey, listen, taking after all the drama and what they think this can and cannot do and in the current situation with the COVID-19 and that, and now finding new places to put movies has become increasingly, increasingly difficult. Listen, I know this. Disney was completely committed to putting uh, New Mutants on the big screen. They were 100% committed to that. But that was before COVID-19. Now you have a release date schedule that is getting really overpacked. Do you want to make New Mutants actually not come out till 2022 when they shot the damn movie in 2017? I mean, it's becoming a question mark. So Rob and I have talked a lot about how it's it's possible they, that that a movie like New Mutants could be one that does just go to streaming because there's they may have nowhere to put it at this point. And that's becoming a growing problem. There's just there's some movies that's like we got nowhere to put it. We simply just don't have anywhere to put it unless we put it on a shelf for like a year and a half or two years. That was the case with uh, the the Seth Rogen film coming out. I can't remember what the name of it. Seth Rogen's got a uh, American Pickle. That's what it's called. So Seth Rogen's got this movie coming out called American Pickle. But the studio faced that thing. That's what they said specifically. It's like we had nowhere left to release it unless we want it to wait an extra year or year and a half or two years. And we don't want to do that with this movie. So they're going to put it straight to HBO. More and more movies are going to face that problem where they simply don't have anywhere to put it. And a movie like New Mutants that's already been delayed so many times, what can you do? So look, it is possible that New Mutants go straight to streaming. This thing about Amazon Prime is not proof of that, though. It very well could end up on streaming. That's very possible. But this situation is not any indicator that that's the case. So just because we've seen this happen before and we've talked about it in news stories before and it turns out to be nothing. So it may be on streaming. It may go straight to streaming. But this is not an indicator of that. That this particular situation is not an indicator of that. Again, don't be surprised if in the next week or two, we do hear that they're going to put it on streaming, but it has nothing to do with this. It has nothing to do with that. All right. Uh, Crazy A Gaming writes, will Black Widow break the billion dollar mark? No. Here's the thing. I never thought I mean, look, it's a Marvel film, so it's possible. Like, let's just throw that out there right now. It's a Marvel film, so it's possible. It is possible. However, um, even before the lockdown, I didn't really think Black Widow would break the billion-dollar mark. I mean, I think some people are going to be turned off from seeing just because they already know that she dies in Endgame. And spoiler alert, everybody knows that. Uh, that she dies in Endgame and all that kind of stuff. So, no, I, I don't see it breaking a billion. Again, it's possible. Every MCU movie is possible, but I didn't see that. But especially in the lockdown world, because even when it opens, we're still going to, there's still going to be people that are a little more hesitant about getting back to the theaters. Even in November, they're going to still be some people a little more hesitant about going. There still might be capacity limits, all that kind of stuff. You know, I just don't see any movie this year making a billion. So I, I don't see, 
Uh, but I mean, again, it's a Marvel film. You never know what could happen. Secular Monk writes, Stallone just talked about a potential Demolition Man sequel. This intrigues me. I love the idea of where a sequel could go. Thoughts? Well, Rob and I talked about that a little bit earlier in the show. That was one of our main topics today. So uh, great minds think alike. Uh, Rob's idea of taking the Creed approach is an intriguing one. That's definitely an intriguing one. So I don't know. Listen, if I had to bet five bucks on whether this actually happens, I'm betting five bucks, not a hundred bucks, but I'm betting five bucks. It doesn't. I, I bet this doesn't actually happen. I, I think they're exploring it. They're getting, they hired some scriptwriter to write a script, see what they got. Stallone can love it all he wants. I just, I don't think any studio is going to make it. If they do, I'll be intrigued. I'll be intrigued, but I don't actually think this one's going to happen. Uh, Samir Tesfai writes, the future of Star Wars is in great hands. I'm so pumped for the next five years of film and TV contents. Thank you, Filoni, uh, for ending CW's, uh, oh, you yeah, Clone Wars uh, beautifully. Well, I mean, that might be up for debate. I, you know me, I've said for a long, I am a, I am a Kathleen Kennedy fan. I think she's one of the greatest producers in the history of Hollywood, but and I thought George Lucas made a great choice on paper. I thought George Lucas made a great choice when he handpicked her to be the head of Lucasfilm. However, I believe I've been saying this for a couple of years now. I believe with it has become apparent that her unique skills are not a match for a studio head. I think her world-class skills are better applied in other doing other amazing things. And you know, I've been saying this for a long time, her inability to properly put the right people in place for new movies and television shows has become legendary. And so I, I, I don't really feel that way. Now, I, I think now a lot of people used to say John Favreau should be the next head of Lucasfilm. And I always said, no, mm, but I was wrong. John Favreau should be the next head of Lucasfilm. After watching that documentary, I'm like, this dude is speaking like a true executive. This guy has the experience and the wisdom and that of an executive. He should be the guy running Lucasfilm. So I think once Kathleen Kennedy steps down and continues on her brilliant producing career, which I look forward to, uh, but once she steps down and they make John Favreau the new head of Lucasfilm, which I think he might have been meant being mentored by Kevin Feige over in the MCU to do it. So I think he's prepared to do it. I think, uh, then I think I will think they're in great hands. Then I will believe they're in great hands. For now, it's still a little dicey though. It's still a little dicey. All right, uh, almost done here, guys. Mike Thompson writes, just a few days ago on Open Mic, someone asked if an R-rated Disney movie or a film shot in space would come first. Guess we got it. That's true. I totally forgot about that. So yeah, on Open Mic, somebody wrote a question. John, what do you think will happen first? A proper Disney, so not one of Disney's companies that they own, but Disney itself. What comes first? Disney itself producing a Disney R-rated film or a movie shot in space. And that was just before. You're right. I totally forgot about that, Mike. I think it's like somebody had a crystal ball and was looking into the future on that one. Thanks for reminding me about that. That's great. All right. Anonymous viewer writes, uh, I saw a new uh, Crozier interview with Filoni for E.T. Uh, they talk about a civil war. I keep on wanting to say civil war or CW. Clone Wars, Mando, and how the experience from Mando influenced uh, Clone Wars uh, Season 7. When asked when he would direct his first Star Wars movie, he said, I still have a lot to learn. You were right about him yesterday. Listen, I said it yesterday. I will say it again. One of my takeaways 
from that episode of the behind the scenes documentary on Mandalorian. Because I like Dave Filoni. I like what he did with Rebels. I'm not a fan of Clone Wars. Everybody knows that. And his two episodes that he directed of Mandalorian were my two least favorite. Uh, I liked his first one, but it, it's my second least favorite. Like his first episode was the pilot. It was my second least favorite episode, but I still liked it. I really didn't like his episode on Tatooine. That was my one episode I didn't like. But you know what? You got to keep in mind, that was the first time he ever directed something live action. It's the first time he ever really directed with his boots on the ground. So you cut him a little bit of slack. But I am telling you, Dave Filoni is going to be a not good. He is going to be a great director. Because what I saw in him in that little behind the scenes documentary was a dude who doesn't think he knows what he's doing. Cause once you get to the point that you believe, yeah, I know what I'm doing. You, you kind of stop growing. You kind of stop evolving and that's fine. I mean, that's fine. That's fine for a lot of directors. They are there and they, and maybe they don't have any more growing or whatever, but Dave Filoni has the attitude of, I don't really know what I'm doing here. I, I've got, and, and you know, he could feel like he does because he has directed television series for, granted they were animated, but still. So he's got every right to think that he does know what he's doing, but he comes out and he says, I don't know what I'm doing here. I've never really done this before. This is a lot of this is new to me and man, I need to be mentored. That's what he said. I need to be mentored. Specifically, he was talking about John Favreau, but then you see him also talking to all these other directors like Deborah Chow and all these other people. And I am sitting there watching this and I will tell you what, I have never been more impressed with Dave Filoni than I was in that moment. And it was in that moment that I went, the sky's the limit. And I said this on yesterday's show, but I'll just repeat it here quickly. When you've got a guy like a Dave Filoni who has that kind of an attitude, there is literally no ceiling for how high his potential can be. Because if he's got the attitude of, I need to learn more, then that means he's always going to evolve and he's always going to get better. And when he, if he maintains that attitude of, I need to learn, I need to learn, I need to learn. If he's always got, there is, the sky is literally the limit. And so I've gone one episode of that documentary, flip me from being, Hey, I like Dave Filoni and he's done an okay job with some stuff. And I didn't like his Mandalorian stuff, but it was okay. Blah, blah. I've gone from that to like, Holy shit. This guy is going to be great. He may not be great right now. And maybe you can argue that. But he's going to be capital G great. You watch. You watch. And by the way, when there were years of people saying, Dave Filoni should direct a big Star Wars movie. And I'm saying, dude, don't make the first thing he ever directs, like with boots on the ground in a live action environment. Don't make the first thing he directs a big tentpole, high budget, high pressure movie like that. It's going to kill him. It'll drown him. And he did the exact right thing. He's like, let me direct some of the, let me direct a couple episodes of television first. Let me do that. Let me get my feet wet. Let me get a taste of what this, and let me do it with other seasoned directors, including John Favreau, Deborah Chow, Taika Waititi, uh, Rick uh, Fayuima. Let me do it with, get my feet wet with these people around me. He was smart. 
And now he's got that experience. And I guarantee you today, Dave Filoni is a better director than he was the day before he started shooting Mandalorian. And when season two of Mandalorian's done, he's going to be an even better director. And listen, I tell you, I, I just, his attitude to me, he's still like, there's still some people who think he should be the head of Lucasfilm. He's clearly not an executive. To, to me, Dave Filoni is clearly not a, an executive. John Favreau is clearly an executive. Dave Filoni is not. That's fine. But man, today, the prospects of Dave Filoni directing a live action Star Wars movie today seem a lot more appealing to me than they did before. A lot more appealing. I think he's going to be great. And I, I like Palpatine said to young Anakin, we will look forward to your career with great interest. I mean, I, it, now I'm really super stoked to see where he goes. And and like I said, my respect for Dave Filoni after that episode skyrocketed, absolutely skyrocketed. So it's going to be great to see where he goes from here. All right. Um, let's see here. Jonah writes, I have a feeling that Venom 2 and Morbius will be seminal movies. Hashtag spunk. Listen, I'll tell you what. I unapologetically Venom was one of the most my most anticipated most of the year. Venom 2. I had more fun with the first Venom film than it had any business being. I thought that movie was far more fun than it had any business being. I had so such a good time that then you add uh, Andy Serkis into the director's chair of that one. Woody Harrelson as Carnage. I tell you what, I am stoked for that movie. And I thought that Morbius trailer, even if you take out the Michael Keaton part and you take out the Spider-Man mural on the wall, even if you take that out, I thought that Morbius trailer was... Damn near perfect for a Morbius trailer. I thought it was damn near perfect for a Morbius trailer. So uh, I'm, I'm stoked about those ones, Jonah. All right, J Master writes, uh, John, Nat Geo just dropped a trailer for a new drama series called The Right Stuff. It's based on the best-selling book by Tom Wolfe, coming soon to Disney+, and Rob might like this. Hint, they go to space. Well, I mean, is it... I'm going to have to go check that out, J Master, see what that's about. Because Is there any connection to, like, the movie The Right Stuff? Is there is I mean being in space called the right stuff or is it is it just like a docu series of actually following or is it a narrative series? Oh, you're calling it a drama? Okay, so it's not docu series. It's a drama. So is it just a television version series of the movie? I'm curious. I gotta go. Okay, as soon as the show's done, I'm gonna go check that out. Thank you, Jay, for putting that on the radar, man. I'm gonna have to go and look into that one. Thank you, man. All right, final question of the day. Uh, uh, NKS four, three, two writes, who is the most cringe UFC fighter on the mic? Ah, uh, there are, let's put it this way. Most UFC fighters are not great on the mic and that's fine. That's not their job. Uh, there are some who are great. Chael Sonnen is great on the mic as much as I don't like him. Um, Conor McGregor is probably the best in the world on the mic. The Diaz brothers are great on the mic, but most UFC fighters are not great on the mic. And, and that's, that's perfectly fine. To me, the most cringy is Amanda Nunez. She is the baddest ass on the planet. She is, I mean, she is the biggest of the badasses in the women's division on the planet. She's the baddest woman alive, no doubt about it. But I just, and I'm not, I'm not talking about her broken English because her native language is Portuguese. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying just what she says is, uh, is kind of cringy. So I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go with that. All right, guys, that'll do it for today's installment of the John Campia show. 
Thank you guys so much for being here and making this show a part of your day. Listen, don't forget the John Campus show with me and Robert Meyer Burnett comes back again tomorrow. I trust you guys will be back to join us and make sure you subscribe to this YouTube channel. Click the thumbs up button down there. And listen, guys, thank you so much for taking a part of your day and spending it with us here. That is truly an honor that you do that. And we appreciate it so much. And a special thank you to all of you guys who sent in questions, not just because you gave us great fun things to talk about, but also because you supported the channel while you did it. And all of us here on the John KB YouTube channel, thank you guys very, very much for that. All right, guys, that will do it for me for today. Remember, guys, do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe. Please take care of yourselves and take care of the people around you. That'll do it for now. My name's John Campion, and until next time, guys, bye-bye.